This episode of the Black Arts Legacies podcast is sponsored by Meta. Well, I was born and raised right here in Seattle, mm -hmm. in the Yeser Terrace. I'm a project girl. Um, I've always been into the arts. I've always been just blocks away from Washington Hall, you know, and, and gone and seen, you know, different performers at Washington Hall. I remember when um, Hendrix was there and, and, of course, all the local bands, we'd be there doing uh, performances for our community. You'll remember Kabibi Monet from the fourth episode of this podcast on Black Arts West. Her involvement in the original Black Arts West inspired her to start New Black Arts West in 1992. My conversation with Kabibi started as one about Washington Hall, New Black Arts West's home base for three years starting in the late 90s. Since one of its claims to fame is hosting a young Jimi Hendrix, our conversation quickly expanded to the black music scene in Seattle back when Kabibi was growing up in the 60s and 70s. Those were the days when the Central District was a black neighborhood. Many big names have come from here or have passed through here. So, I mean, we've, we've been so blessed, the musicians here. I mean, Billy Preston, you know, was always in and out at the Black and Tan Club or the 410 Supper Club. Uh, both of those clubs were the, you know, the, the clubs that people would come to come to, you know, come to Seattle to frequent or to check out because they knew that Billie Holiday played at the play, at the penthouse, I do believe was the name of the club, and other clubs. Uh, Ray Charles used to be right here on 14th, across the street from uh, Washington Hall. He would be here um, performing, Ray Charles sitting just playing his, you know, music for the Esquire Club, which was on 14th and Yesler. Okay, I'd walk my dog, and they would have the door open, so I would be looking inside. So you know, it was it was a time that Seattle was popping with entertainment, and like I said, the stars would come through here, going to Canada to perform. So it was quite a life. I've had quite a life. I mean, I've always been blessed with having the opportunity to be in what I was passionate about, and that is the arts. According to Kabibi. Seattle was the best-kept secret in black entertainment. Oh, and something else that's pretty unique about the scene of Seattle mm -hmm. and the music and the, the performing arts period is that we learned a lot of how to be professionals in, be it uh, the horn we were playing or the play we were acting in or the song we were singing. We learned that by going to classes from our mentors or those that had done it before us and professionals that did it would come and, and tutor us and teach us these things. And some of those mentors were big names in black entertainment taking time to encourage and teach young people. Those were Dave Lewis and Woody Woodhouse mm -hmm. and Floyd Standifer and all those were the old musicians that brought us young kids under their wing and allowed us to go and we would go into a restaurant that they would be playing at, let's say, and they'd say, uh, you sing? Or, or Carolyn, which was my birth name. Carolyn, come on up here and sing a song. They allowed us and helped us and encouraged us to step forward and do what we said. We, you said you want to be a musician? Then come on. I mean, they were taking the horn players and the bass players and they were, you know, really, they, we really had a stronghold here as, as part of the legacy of this um, city through entertainment. I mean, we were renowned performers and entertainers 
coming from or living in in Seattle. This was this was the legacy of our of us was that black and tan had Ernestine Anderson nightclub down the street and on and on and on. We were we were so engrossed in the arts here with music and, and, and theater. I collected a lot of moments like this that didn't fit into the other episodes, but still felt important. So I've got one more episode for you this season. I'm Brooklyn, and I'm still here with the Black Arts Legacies podcast, a show from Crosscut exploring the history and ongoing impact of Black art and artists in Seattle. This season has been all about the spaces, homes, and halls Black Seattle has built to foster generations of Black community and creativity. Consider this something of a bonus episode, because I'm going to do something a little different. When I first started planning this season back in February, it was supposed to be four episodes, each focused on a specific Black art space. It only took a couple of interviews for me to be convinced that there had to be five. A lot of people wanted to talk about more than just the art spaces we've discussed. They had thoughts and observations about living in the Central District and watching it change that I find inseparable from the story of this season. Arts and culture has been a constant through line in this story of creation, loss, and preservation. So we're following the recollections of those you've heard this season through Central District history. Hopefully, the importance of arts and culture comes through along the way. The 60s weren't just a time when Black art thrived in Seattle. There was also a lot of activism, too. In providing the context for his father helping to create Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute, the subject of episode one, Keith Tucker began the story there. One of my first uh, memories that connects us to this topic, when I was a a little kid, um, I was only three years old when I had this memory. Um, It was when, in 1968, when... Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered. And I was actually watching along with my mom, Walter Cronkite, announced that he was murdered. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all points bullet. And I don't remember because I was too young to remember what happened in the streets. You know, I wasn't out in the streets at that point. But um, I do know that in Seattle there were riots um, in the streets. Seattle's riots happened in July of 1968 in response to three activists from the peaceful Franklin High School sit in getting a six month prison sentence for unlawful assembly. Most of our programs for the black community. Um, you know, obviously was led by community activists that care and concerned about the community that did their work and, and all of that stuff. But it sprung out of the, the assassination and murder of Martin Luther King. That's what this stuff really started from. Kind of like and similar to the murder of George Floyd. In the same way that George Floyd's murder by police in 2020 caused people to pay attention to issues affecting Black Americans, Activism in Seattle increased around MLK's assassination. So they say, you know, what comes around goes around and things repeat themselves. To me, being a person that kind of has experienced both times, I really see it, you know, through what my dad was doing and their generation and through now what what I'm doing. Now, Keith uses hip hop to promote health for young people through his nonprofit, Hip Hop is Green. But back to 1968. That was the beginning of the Seattle Black Panther Party, the first chapter outside of California. 
It began within weeks of MLK's assassination and moved into Madrona, just northeast of the Central District, soon after. The next year, Black Arts West opened across the block, and Madrona was absolutely where Al Doggett, the commercial and fine artist you met talking about Black Arts West in the fourth episode, wanted to be. And still is. It was good for me to have my studio based there in the community as a home studio, as opposed to having an office downtown, which a lot of people say, oh, Alan, you should get a studio downtown. His Madrona studio allowed him to hire, train, and teach young people right in the community. And my first employee was a young girl who I met her family. She just graduated from Garfield High School. And she was walking by the, the studio, the home there. And I said, hey, Jan, what are you doing? What's she doing now? You got out of high school. She, she was looking for a job. And I knew she was interested in art. And I showed her what I was doing. You know, she kind of was always drawing and getting information from me. So I told her that, you know, if she would be interested, you know, I'd love to have her do some of the work that I'm doing. So I hired her and trained her how to do uh, some of the illustration work, an airbrush and creating uh, skies and backgrounds for, she did a lot of the work that was appeared in Bon Marche's newspaper ads and magazine uh, promotional ads. So she became quite proficient. She was a very color expert. She was my real key airbrush artist. She learned really fast as well. But it was good that she lived. She just walked up the street, you know, from her house and was coming right to work every day. So you had the Black Panthers active from 1968 to 1978, Black Arts West from 1969 to 1980, and Al Doggett Studio starting in 1967, which leads right into the 70s. In the 70s, you had people wearing afros, people wearing daishikis, you had a lot of soul music, you had all kind of black bands that was playing in Seattle before hip hop and disco and all of that stuff. It was all about soul music, you know, and funk bands and all of that stuff. So, you know, we had all of our food and our culture and, and just, you know, and, and the activists that was involved in all of this stuff as well, too. So it was like a really wonderful cultural explosion that happened in the 70s with blackness. You know, and part of that was, um, you know, because of the arts, because of the things the Black Panthers was doing. And um, so that led the framework for cultural expression. Black Arts West, the Black Panther Party, and Langston Hughes, too, which opened in 1972. At the same time came integration, which Khabibi believes killed Black Seattle's independence. One form of that integration was the busing that Keith experienced. I grew up in a Black community. Black stores, Black restaurants, Black, you know, mostly everything, you know. And the predominant high school was Garfield High School, and they won every basketball championship, football championship. I mean, that was the school to go to. But I, I, I do remember... Um, you know, a lot of our community organizations that we had when I grew up, Black Arts West uh, up in the Madrona area was one of the um, amazing black organizations. Um, there was a CAYA where we could play football and that was started by a black person as well, too. And, and that gave us an outlet for different sports that we could play. When, you know, when I got to being Probably in middle school, going close to high school, there was this thing called busing. 
And I don't know if you know what busing was, but um, we were the first group um, that experienced busing. Here's a little on busing in Seattle. In response to Brown versus Board in 1954, Seattle started a voluntary school transfer program in the 60s and early 70s to desegregate schools. And even when mandatory busing expanded to all Seattle schools under the 1978 Seattle Plan, it was mostly non-white students getting on buses to white majority schools. And so they bust us out to white schools to try to integrate white schools for the first time. And so we had to go out there and um, be a part of that. That was kind of crazy, um, you know, experience, cultural experience for us. But as you heard in episode one, even with busing, Keith enjoyed growing up in the Central District. When I grew up in Seattle, um, I had a wonderful experience in the Black community um, here. Um, not knowing all of the different um, economic programs that the city had to keep us in that area. You know, I was totally insulated from that when I was a kid. Then in the 80s, things began to visibly change. People always think, you know, the crack area, they may think L.A., New York or whatever. But the crack area was serious here in Seattle as well. It seemed like one day... You know, there was just, you know, maybe ma marijuana or, you know, whatever. And then the next day, it was snowing cocaine everywhere. Crack houses on every corner, all of that stuff in the 80s. That, I guess, laid the foundation and the groundwork for the Central Area Development Association and banks and housing developers to come in and get property from you know, um, people that lived in the central area for years and purchased their property. Driving a lot of that change was what Professor Kyunga Yamada-Taylor, an African-American studies professor at Princeton University, calls predatory inclusion. Racially restrictive housing was outlawed in 1968's Fair Housing Act, and shortly after, historically Black neighborhoods were flooded with credit. Loans in suburbs opened up for Black people, though the options were often on predatory terms and city landscapes changed. That's when people stopped holding on to what they had. That's what T. Denard, the last artistic director of Black Arts West, you met in episode four, was talking about with Black Arts West and the broader neighborhood. We, we can't be mad at nobody but ourselves. That's right. I have a friend whose who's dad uh, owned a whole block of homes in Seattle, in the Central District, right down the street from the Barfield High School. Mm -hmm. He passed. She had sold all of that property. Oh, no. A whole block. Okay. Mm. A, a whole block. And I know, because I rented one of the places that he lived in. And the whole block. Mm. I mean, you know, and that was just a part of it. People, people had legacies in this town go back to the founding of Seattle. Mm -hmm. Their families, mm -hmm. when they died off, the youngsters or whoever it's powers to be, sold that. All that legacy gone, sold it. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, I mean, because it happened, <laughs> it, it happened so slick. Before you knew it, you looked up and you realized what was happening. You looked around, and you didn't 
You didn't see none of you. You didn't see no black folks. <laughs> well, where, where they go? In the Central District, many told me that the change felt like part of a plan. Keith remembered seeing the same kind of thing happening. And that's when it really started back in the early 80s of, of people that were that have lived in the central area for decades and decades and decades. And the next thing you know, they're selling their house and they're moving somewhere else. Or grandma died and uh, the, you know, the grandson has the house now and, you know, he has no attachment to it. So he's selling it. You know what I mean? So it, it kind of was like that. Or we can't really uh, afford to fix our house up because we can't get a loan. You know, and it's all dilapidated now. Um, and so, you know, who cares about that? We, we, I'll take the 150 grand you're going to give me. You know, and back then that was big money. In leaving the Central District, Black people generally moved to Renton and Kent, Seattle suburbs that I've heard some tea about. It is a lot closer to Mount Rainier. And the jail at King County Justice Center in Kent opened in the late 90s, not long after Black people started moving that way. Even though Black folks... Uh, were leaving the central area, we were still tied to the central area for our culture. Food, church, Langston Hughes, there was plenty in the central district to come back to. And you know what else was happening in the 80s? Free the land. Free the land. Because whoever controls the land controls the people on the land. You'll remember Omari in the African American Heritage Museum for episode three on the Northwest African American Museum. That's him at the 35th anniversary of the African-American Heritage Museum and Cultural Center in 2020. Even as Black people owned less and less of the Central District, activists waged a passionate battle for control and ownership of the Coleman School. Their pursuit of ownership reminded me of something Keith said, reflecting on his dad's work to create Langston Hughes. I look back at what my dad did and, you know, they put the city of Seattle in charge of, of Langston Hughes and you know, um, that's that was cool then, but I would like our community to own that building, not the city of Seattle. We should own that land. We should own that building. We should run the finances in it, you know? So that's the only thing that I would say that, that I would like to uh, um, have seen done different. Um, but my dad did what, what he could do then, you know, with what he had. Also in the 80s and 90s? Black artists continue to come to Seattle and mentor Black youth. I learned about that from Edna DeGray. She's the dance icon you've heard from before, talking about how Langston Hughes and Black Arts West influenced Awajio Dance Workshop, her dance studio. We brought a lot of artists, especially Black artists here in Seattle, from uh, the 70s all the way up to 2000. We made sure that our children knew Ben Vereen. Uh, we knew, um, of course, the Alvin Ailey Dance Company because we've had, uh, we produced three dancers right here in Seattle to be a part of the Alvin Ailey Dance Company with Judith Jamison years ago. Ben Vereen, as in the Tony-winning actor, and the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, as in the game-changing modern Black dance company in New York. In Seattle, we were able to connect with them. Because we didn't have the money, of course, to do artists in residence as much as we would like. But we did it through University of Washington. And they wanted to. They wanted to, you know, like Donna McHale and a lot of the Alvin Ailey dancers, they wanted to reach out to the community where people of color were, even though it could be diverse. But, you know, they really, you know, you know, we're always looking, <laughs> you know. So, you know, anybody look like me out there, <laughs> you know. So, so, so that's basically what we did. And I have just a lot of names that we 
we were able to, to bring in. And I thought teaching classes was one thing, but to really talk to young people in a way where it's more about life, uh, their life and uh, their struggles and their success. And then, you know, the dance comes later because kids are so infatuated with the dance. But, you know, I wanted them to really learn something about, you know, dance and life, you know, because dance is more more beyond just dance. It's a benefit for you. So that's how we used our guest artists. And uh, we brought most of them were from New York and California, L.A. With the 90s came New Black Arts West, the James and Janie Washington Foundation, and hip-hop. That's the era Jasmine Scott grew up in. She's the Director of Programs and Partnership at Layson Hughes, who I talked to the first episode. Though currently, she is transitioning out of her leadership role there. A lot of the people that are in hip-hop in Seattle really kind of started off at Langston Hughes. And so I was exposed to that. Like I'm friends, you know, I grew up with and I'm friends with all these people that are pretty widely known in music locally and beyond. So you think about a vitamin D, uh, what, what does he go by now? Rockfella, um, <laughs> you know, uh, there's Blackstacks, even Macklemore. Like he's, he, I think he's a little bit younger than me, but he used to come around the shows at Langston. So there were hip hop shows and, you know, uh, people that would just come, dancers, so many dancers and dance shows. And so it was literally like, always being surrounded by all of that, all of the time, whenever you were in that space. And it was a place where artists, young artists went to kind of like hone in on those skills. You know, there were opportunities for them to practice, for them to perform, for them to have shows. Even as the black population continued to decline, it was still a cool place to grow up. It's a cool place to be. It has its kinks, but it's it's great. When you're when you're at least able to be kind of connected to the community, it's a really beautiful thing. I know y'all want to hear this story through to the present to think about how black art survives in a white central district. So keep listening. Meta is proud to be the title sponsor for the Black Arts Legacies Project. Meta builds technologies that help billions of people around the world connect, find communities, and grow businesses. With apps like Facebook, Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp, they're able to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. To learn more, go to meta.com. Support for the Black Arts Legacies podcast comes from BECU a member-owned credit union that puts people over profit. For over 85 years, BECU has offered financial services and support to the community. Members have access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs through the co-op network, and online resources. Learn more at becu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Even in the 2000s, when Sharon Williams moved to Seattle and the Northwest African American Museum opened, the Central District was a place to find and build Black community. Sharon is the arts administrator you've heard from about Langston Hughes and NAM. I love the CD. The CD, when I moved to Seattle 22 years ago, was the first place where I came to get my hair done. It was the first place where I found a grocery store like the Red Apple 
And as you walked around the store, you heard gospel music, soul music. You you got the foods that I could get back home in North Carolina. And you had the relationships and you felt the energy of the cashiers and things that's different. That beloved red apple on 23rd and Jackson is now gone. To the disappointment of many, apartments and an Amazon Fresh now stand on that corner. When you walk into these spaces that are connected to Black arts and culture, and including the churches, right? When you walk into these spaces and you look like I look, the best thing that is happening is that you can walk in and not be afraid of being yourself, of not worrying about being judged, about what you have on, what you look like, what you're going to say, why you're there, all of those questions where we often don't get that when we walk in other doors, when we walk in the doors of universities, when we walk into other regional and theaters in town, when we walk into a simple Walgreens or QFC or all those places where you feel as though you just, you just can't be yourself for some reason. You have to put up this facade. And that's what we've been taught from day one. And that's the, that's the legacy that we've been given. But when you get into cultural spaces, that legacy of, hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, queen, hey, king, how you doing? I'm so happy to see you. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. It's as simple as that. And that's what being a part of this community is about. For us, it's a bonus when somebody looks like us, comes in and feels like, oh my God, I'm home. But then it's also how we treat people that don't look like us too, that come to the doors the same way. And it's just that that arts and culture hospitality that we have to make people feel welcome and comfortable, but also know that this foundation is built off the struggle of our ancestors. And we're just trying to tear down um, all of that hate that we've gotten over the, the 400 years or what have you and say, no, this is who we are. We are human. Yet, the Central District continues to get less and less Black. And, as Keith observed, Black people are building community outside of the city. And then you see cultural things happening in Kent. Um, Soul food restaurants opening up in Kent. You know, Black churches coming out into Kent, right? So now you've got a, a small Black community in Kent now. You know what I mean? And so now you're going less and less back to the central area than you were before, you know? Which is a struggle Jasmine voice when talking about developing programming at Langston Hughes. The bottom line is that when we're inviting them back to the space, we're having to consider that people are traveling from <laughs> all over the, the city and the state, you know? But as you've probably noticed, Black people didn't just abandon their community spaces in the CD. One example is that the African-American Heritage Museum has occupied the front of Nam for two years as of Juneteenth of this year. Another is how people rallied for Langston Hughes in the 2010s. 
the community was still like, nope, you're not going to take this. You're not going to take this from us. You know, there's so much about this this neighborhood that is um, unrecognizable to those of us that have been here for a long time. I still live in the neighborhood. Um, and so, and it's different. I live in a space that, I live in a building <laughs> that, you know, was something else when I was growing up. Um, and so that's just, that's just what it is. Like, you know, if you were to leave and come back a year later and come to this neighborhood, you might be like, what, wait, where did the, where did the, that go? And where was, what is this? And, you know, I, I encounter that just kind of being in Seattle and I haven't left. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Like what happened to the such and such? It's gone, you know? And so this this is happening so rapidly and while that's happening it's really important that this historic space you know is there you want to know what i learned through this project a whole lot actually but i want to end on something sharon said to me very early in the process that rings true over and over you heard a little of it in the first episode her insisting that we not silo arts and culture i'm like that person in the room that's always like Excuse me. Um, I didn't see uh, you didn't mention or I don't see anybody at the table around arts and culture. And and they was like, oh, OK, I can't hear you saying anything about um, economic development and not talk about an organization like a Hansberry project that's been fighting and constantly hiring artists to to work at rates that are sufficient for them to live off of. If that's not economic development, I don't know what economic development is. Or for all of our organizations that are fighting to pay artists livable wages, and it's not just artists, it's the whole ecosystem of what it means to be a creative economy. So don't tell me that when you're talking about uh, entrepreneurship or economic development or housing or education that you're not talking about arts and culture. When you walk around the Central District and see Black art on the buildings, on the street corners, and in the crosswalks of a neighborhood that's not majority white, it's about arts and culture in this wide sense. In trying to capture what made each place profile this season so special, it was never just about four art spaces, as you've heard. It was about housing, education, entrepreneurship, and economic development in a formerly Black neighborhood, because that's arts and culture too. The art you see in the streets and the passion and remorse you hear in those I talked to this season are about fighting to preserve a small part of it, even if it's only the memory of it being here. Most of the people from that era, Black Arts West, are deceased. There are a few of us left here in the Seattle area um, that remember and, you know, uh, and that was, was there that's, that's still here. Um, but few and far between, you know. And about reviving it. So if you come up with a, you come up with a solution, Brooklyn, you let me know and I, I'll be right there to jump on that bandwagon with you. I mean, I gotta be honest right now. I, 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 I do best sitting in a chair and giving some advice rather than getting out there. I ain't got that energy no more. You know, I've had my day, my season, 
my season is over. My mobility is bad, eyes bad, everything bad. So, and the only only two that actors have is our body. So when our body starts to go, then so goes our career. T was talking to me, but he was also talking to you to do the work and keep preserving the institutions we have and to keep creating new ones, like Art Noir, the one that Jasmine is leaving Langston Hughes to run. Sharon and I are both really excited about that one. I think we're at a point where people are starting to recognize, and I hope that they're starting to recognize, that we're beyond that we only need one venue for Black arts and culture in Seattle. And we also, at the same time, need to encourage more. We need more spaces. I love it that we have an art noir that's coming on on board that will be opening hopefully sometime this summer. And I, I love that we have all these spaces that are coming on board, but at the same time, there's there's room for more. A lot more. So now here's something actionable. Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute is a 100-year-old building. The Washington Foundation is still undergoing a session and restoration. And there are several Black theaters like the Hansberry Project, New Black Arts West, Acts on Stage, the CD Forum. You can reach out to any of them to see how you can help them out, with money or with time. This is not the end of the legacy, but this is the end of this episode and this season of the Black Arts Legacies podcast. This episode was reported and produced by Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers, that me, with additional reporting by Jasmine Mahmood and Kemi Adeyemi. The story editors are Sarah Bernard and Mark Bumgarden, who's also the executive producer. Audio support from Jonah Cohen. You can subscribe to Black Arts Legacies wherever you listen. And if you like this show, please review us. It's a great way to spread the word about the show. For more on Black Arts Legacies and other Crosscut podcasts, go to crosscut.com slash podcasts. For more information on this project, including video profiles of Sharon Williams, Al Doggett, and Dave Lewis, and a written profile on Edna DeGray, go to blackartslegacies.com. This episode, you heard Dave Lewis's song, J.A.J. It was written by Dave Lewis, performed by The Dynamics, and produced by Tom O'Gilvie in 1962. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming from KCTS9, Seattle's PBS station. Thanks for taking this journey with me. Bye, y'all.